Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. All right. This morning we have the joy of coming to Psalm 13, and it is just what the doctor ordered for us. So let's listen to the Word of God, Psalm 13, as we go through the second ten. The musicians are writing, putting all the psalms to music, and so they've done the first ten last year. So now they're working on the second ten, and we started with 11, 12, and now we're on 13. This is the third. Very short psalm, only six verses. A perfect psalm for a rainy day. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Again, this psalm is for the choir director. And so we know it's to be sung. And so our musicians just set it to music. It doesn't tell us who the choir director is. We don't know his name. It may have been that it was a position that changed, like today, Jody's off and Philip is on. And so whoever the choir director is, this is what it's for. And then it is a psalm of David. We know who wrote it. David wrote the psalm. And the purpose of this psalm is to plead with God for help in the midst of evil days when evil has been allowed, again, as we saw in Psalm 12, to triumph. And the psalm, like Psalm 12, begins with David crying out to God. Now, in Psalm 12, his cry, you remember, was, Help, Lord! Psalm 13 has David crying out, How long, O Lord? And the words how long are repeated four times. So, how long, how long, how long, how long? Now, why is David crying out how long? Well, it's because God has withdrawn himself from David, and David finds God's absence intolerable. Now, why does David find the absence of God intolerable? Well, it's because David loves God. Lovers always find the absence of the one they love intolerable. God made us for love. God made us to love him, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God made Adam to love Eve and Eve to love Adam. It was not good for the man to be alone. God made us 
to love our fathers and mothers, and God made fathers and mothers to love their sons and daughters. God calls us and commands us to love our neighbor. God commands us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ because they too are adopted sons of God, family love. So God made us for love, starting with the love of God. And David loves God, and God is not showing himself to David, and David cries out in pain. How long, O Lord? Verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, has God forgotten David? Well, God can't forget anything. So God hasn't forgotten David. So what is David saying? Well, the next phrase gives us an indication because the next phrase is, how long will you hide your face from me? And so David is convinced that God has forgotten him because God is hiding his face from David. This is God's testing of us, his children. It is his discipline of those he loves. God hides his face from us. Now, you know how often I mention when I preach on psalms that the people that study psalms say, this psalm was written at this time in David's life, and this psalm was written at this time in David's life, and predictably with this psalm, there's an argument about when this psalm was written. And a number of students of the psalm say this psalm was written after David's sin by committing adultery with Bathsheba and by murdering her husband Uriah. And the reason they say this is that this psalm has sort of a faith-shaken, faithless kind of mournful kind of sober kind of pathetic feel to it that would only make sense after David has committed the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And it's interesting, I know that because I read another commenter who cited this commenter saying this and then came back and said, actually, there are psalms that are every bit as negative and trembling as this psalm that are explicitly said to be prior to the time of David's sin. And so what he's saying is you can't really predict when different psalms are written based on David's life if you think that he was particularly uh, sort of broken and weak after. Now, there's no question that after his sin with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah, David would have had a greater compassion for us and others in their sin. I don't think there's any question that David would have had more meekness and humility, right? It just makes sense that David is going to be more empathetic with the weaknesses of others, right? But would David have less of an understanding and sense of God's presence after he's been forgiven than before he's been forgiven? And I think that the answer to that is no. <laughs> because I don't know anything that makes God's presence more real to us than the forgiveness of sins. I don't know that my relationship with God is ever as tender and intimate as when I confess my sins and he is faithful and just to forgive me my sins. 
So I don't think it makes any sense, as I've said before, unless the scripture explicitly says this psalm was written after David's sin with Bathsheba, like Psalm 51 says this is when this happened. I don't think it makes any sense, you know, to try to, you know, bring the dowser with his rod and figure out when this and that and the other psalm was written and what the occurrence was. The fact is, the, uh, the sentiment and the fear and the pain of this psalm is universal in our lives. Every single one of us has perfect knowledge of what David is saying. Unless it might be a child who's so young that they've never had a depressed day in their life. And so David prays for all of us when he says, How long, O Lord? It indicates that this condition of David, of feeling forgotten by God, and of having God hide his face from him, has been going on for a very long time now for David. How long is the theme? How long, how long, how long, how long? And the reason he feels like God has abandoned him is that God is hiding his face for him. And this makes sense when you think of the benediction that Moses gives to Aaron in number 6, 24 to 26, where he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. You ever been talking to your child and your child's sulking? And so what do you do? You take your index finger and you put your index finger under the child's chin and you lift up his countenance upon you. And this is the blessing that we have from God, that God makes his face to shine on us and he lifts up his countenance upon us. This is what David didn't have. David had no sense of God's face, of his presence, and so God had abandoned him and so God did not even know what was going on in David's life. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? What David is saying here is that he can't get his suffering out of his mind, the absence of God out of his mind. He thinks about it day and night. And so the counsel that he takes is a counsel of defeat, a counsel of absence, a counsel of abandonment. In other words, there's no relief from David as he ruminates. This, you know, like a cow does. It's like David is just bound up and confused. And all his thoughts go nowhere. They lead to nothing. There's no solution. It's just a circle, a tight circle, and it's going around and around. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? It's a pitiable state. This is David's condition, and when he thinks during the day, he can't get away from sorrow. All it is is sorrow. Now, what is the response for this situation. He feels forgotten. God's hiding his face from him. He's completely confused. And sorrow prevails all the day in his heart. 
Then it says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? And you know, that's when your enemies exalt over you. When your enemies see that you're cast down, what do they do? Well, like LeBron James, they step over top of you. LeBron, Draymond Green, LeBron was exalted over him, right? And this is what our enemies do. The minute we're down, they step on us. They, they laugh at us. They, they take delight in our pain and in our sorrow. How long will my enemy be exalted? And this is the fourth time David has said how long. He's in extreme pain, and so he's repetitious. Now, you know that the Bible says we're not supposed to give ourselves to vain repetition, right? But this is good repetition because David is taking his pain to God. And this is not something that somebody told him he should say over and over again that maybe God will listen. This is something David's saying over and over again because he can't get away from it. This is, his whole brain is how long, how long, how long, how long? It's interesting in this statement, how long will my enemy be exalted over me, that one of the, one of the commenters on this, this, uh, this prayer says that the constant in all the prayers of the book of Psalm is God and enemies. And that's such an important thing for us in, in our day. This is so important. Because the truth is what most people care about more than anything today is that they will never have anybody irritated with them, that they will have no enemies. And so everybody's doing everything they can to carefully craft their words, their appearance, their, the pictures they put on. Everything is done in such a way that nobody can be offended by me. Right? And yet, in the prayers, the prayer book for Christians that God has given us in the book of Psalm, the constants are God and enemies. And so you ask yourself, why does David have enemies? I've always thought about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts in Bloomington. Because the thing that just I can't figure out about Bloomington is why do the servants of God have no enemies? It just seems like all of us who are Christians can live sweetly in Bloomington, and yet Bloomington's an evil place. I was at IU Surplus store yesterday, and I almost bought something just for the heck of it. It was this huge exhibit case made out of nice maple, beautiful finish, and two display shelves on each side. It was probably as it's even wider than one of these panels, maybe as wide almost as those curtains. And at the center of it, it, it had glass on it and two doors so that whatever was at the center was really special, right? And it was a display case, and you were, to, you were to open up to see the things that were protected behind the glass. And right at the center of it was this, uh, was this sign, uh, Kinsey Institute um, Materials. And so you can just imagine what the materials were that were so precious that they were behind the glass. Right? 
This is our community. And how is it that as Christians, we live in such a way that we don't have any enemies? <laughs> you know, how do we pull that off? Well, I'm such a good Christian. I'm so much like Jesus that everybody likes me. And that really is the way most Christians think. The more we live like Jesus, the more people will like us. So what's wrong with David? Why is David always talking about enemies? Oh yeah, he was a king. He's a king. And kings always have to worry about assassination and enemies. You know, Brexit, stuff like that. You know? It just goes with leadership, right? I was reading last night this uh, biography of England. And in the biography, they were talking about 11th and 12th and 13th centuries and how everybody thinks that it was such a terribly crime-infested land and, and that the kings just, just took advantage of all their subjects. And then it went on to explain that actually the kings were only as good as their leadership and that the bad kings weren't the ones that were strong leaders. The bad kings were the ones that didn't lead. And of course, anybody that's grown up in a home where the father doesn't lead knows what you're talking about, right? Those are the homes that have all kinds of crimes and everything prevailing in the home, right? David had enemies not because he was king. Why did David have enemies? David had enemies because David was a man after God's own heart. That's why David had enemies, right? Any man after God's own heart is going to live with the reality of enemies. That's why enemies and God are the polar opposites of every psalm. It's all through the book of Psalms. And so how do we live in Bloomington without enemies? How do you pull that off? I was sitting with a PCA pastor who was coming to town to plant a church here. And he'd wanted to get together with me. I mean... I'd wanted to get together with him. So anyhow, we got together at the Starbucks on the west side. And we talked for an hour or so, and, 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 and then I said something like, well, you know, there are, there are people in town that really dislike me, or I might actually have said hated me, <laughs> you know. And, and it was really funny. He was, he's a cool dude, you know. He's, you know, he's very calm, and, you know, he, everything's under control, right? But at that moment when I said that there were people that didn't like him, he went like this. Talk to me about that, Tim. Why do you think that's the case? And I knew that this was the moment. And I said to him, well, you know, have you ever thought about who your heroes are, like Jesus and Peter? And you know, like Calvin, Luther. You know, for any hero you have who's dead. <laughs> have you ever noticed that they're your heroes because people hated them? And I said, I don't understand how we can be faithful shepherds of God today and not be hated here in Bloomington. Is there something about Bloomington that means that we can be the one generation of pastors that don't have to take up our cross? Is that just like this wonderful thing that's happened? That all of a sudden being a Christian pastor and, and being loved by everyone are synchronous. You know, they go together perfectly. Listen, 
you get up, you preach these, these psalms to you, you preach, and you tell me how I'm supposed to preach psalms that always have enemies, always, and preach them to you in a way they make sense. You tell me, how am I supposed to do that? Come on, how am I supposed to do it? Yeah, it's the Old Testament or, you know, Jesus came to show us what a nice guy he is. But listen, guys, you're not going to have the joy at the end of this psalm until you have the enemies that David has. You cannot understand this psalm until you suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. You cannot have the joys of this psalm until you have experienced the mercy of God for your sin and confessed it. Do you understand this? You can't have it. You don't get to celebrate the joy of God's salvation if he hasn't saved you from anything. <laughs> this is why the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God. Why would he say that unless he was ashamed? I mean, have you ever thought about that? The only way it makes sense is I'm not ashamed. He's ashamed. Right? Right? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now, I know that right about now you're thinking, well, maybe David, the reason he had enemies is that David had killed Uriah, he'd murdered him, and he'd committed adultery. And listen, I have no question at all that part of the reason David had enemies was because of David's terrible sin. But guys, this is your life and mine. Every time you take a step to obey God, every single time, what happens is the minute you take up your cross and follow Jesus, what happens? You know what happens. Immediately you sin. You cannot live in this life without sinning. You cannot walk by faith without sinning. Every single time you open your mouth, you sin. I, I suppose when you say the Apostles' Creed, there's no sin or recite scripture. But even then, what about all those thoughts going in your mind about how much more scripture you know than the other stupid idiots in this church? I mean, look. There is no way for us to honor Jesus Christ without having our sins add to the reason the enemies of God hate us. Right? And so, get over yourself. You're going to sin. They'll have a combination of God's honor, God's law to hate you for, and your own sin. They'll mix together. It'll be a melange. And get over yourself. It's God. David is a man after God's own heart. The reason he has enemies is that he stands for God. And David's a sinner. Can you imagine David trying to, um, trying to be faithful to God after his adultery and murder? Have you ever thought about that? Did David stop being a man after God's own heart after he committed adultery and murder? No, in some ways I would say he was more a man of God after that. 
Notice, I didn't say he was more a man of God because of that. I don't know how things work in God's causations, you know, but I guarantee you, again, that David could have explained to you God's mercy better. He would have been more meek, he would have been more humble, and he would have been more compassionate. Right? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? Then verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. It's getting embarrassing, isn't it? How long, how long, how long, how long? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. David's not lowering the intensity of his, uh, of his pleas with God, is he? He brings death into it. <laughs> you know. Oh, come on, David. Isn't that a little bit melodramatic? You're going to die? Listen, whatever David was, he was no coward and he was no victim. Whatever David was, he was at the point where he wanted to die. And many of us have been there. Many of us have been there. We don't want to live. We live for our wife. We live for our children. We live for our work, our workers. We live for the church. We live for the people who would be harmed. But we don't want to live. And this is what David's saying. He's saying, look, I don't want to live. I'll take it to death. I'll die. If you don't answer me, I'm going to die. I'm going to take it to the grave. There can be many, many things that cause us to get to this point. Many things. It can be divorce. It can be adultery. Ours, our adultery, can bring us to death. It can be the adultery of our wife or our husband or our father and mother. How many times you see that in a university community, people that have no will to live because of the sins of their parents? It's terrible. It can be the death of one of our children, it can be our work. It can be our marriage. It can be our own sin. I know that's what it was for me when this was my prayer most clearly. Is, you know, my sin was now, I was reaping the fruit from my sin. And I just wanted to die. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And if David does give in and dies, if he gives himself to death, then what will happen? Well, verse 4, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Now again, remember that David's enemies are not just David's enemies, they're God's enemies. Remember that David, the Bible says David, is a man after God's own heart. So when David has enemies, God has enemies. That's the way it works. Everywhere you go as a Christian, God goes. Everyone that looks at you says, there goes Jesus. Okay? 
Jesus' reputation, Jesus' honor, Jesus' name, everywhere you go, you are testifying to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you want to or not. You are the Christian. You can't get under that, out, out from under that weight. And so David says, what? My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. You remember a little bit earlier, I talked about the fact that every time we choose to take up our cross and follow Jesus, our sin will immediately be added to it. You remember that? And so every time any man or woman or child identifies himself as a follower of Christ, which is what a Christian is, immediately there will be sin. And so God's reputation is always bound up with the reputation of sinners like you and me. The best illustration of this is in Deuteronomy 9, where the Israelites are about to settle in the promised land. And you remember that neither Moses nor Aaron can go into the promised land. You remember that? And shortly before that, God gets furious with his people, his church, in the Old Testament. Because why? Well, because they all got into an orgy and made a golden calf and were like, they were just going bonkers around this golden calf, doing what people do around their idols. All right? And so God saw his people, his people, he saw what they were doing, and he was furious. And he said to Moses, what? He said, Moses, get out of my way because I'm going to consume this people. God was going to burn them up. I mean, these were the people that it was after 40 years, right? This is horrible. And Aaron had led them in it. Aaron copped the posture of, well, I didn't know what to do, so I just, and then just, and I just, and I was just like, you know, I mean, I mean what would you do? Like, you know? And so Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he says to them, now remember, these, this is the church in the Old Testament, God's people, Moses is their leader, and Moses says to them this, Deuteronomy 9.24, he says, you, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. Now, is that a good description of you as a Christian? Huh? Huh? Some of you are too old in the faith to be nodding your heads. Is this accurate about you? From the day that your pastor first knew you, you've been rebellious. Come on. All right, now listen. He says, so I, Moses, you've been rebellious from the day I met. So I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and nights which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. You've been rebellious in the day. So I fell down, I prayed and fasted for 40 days, and I pleaded with God because he said he was going to destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at their wickedness or their sin. And then listen to his reasons, okay? Same reason as King David in in Psalm 13. 
His reason is this. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us, and what land is that? That's Egypt. Otherwise, the pagans in Egypt will say, actually it says may say, quote, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. You see what's going on here? He says, I'm going to die. And he says, then the enemies will say, yeah, God didn't love him. God slayed him. God removed his presence from him. God did not help him. I'm lifted up over him. And he is put down. In other words, his God is not the true God. My idol is the true God because I have been lifted up and he has been put down. And Moses says, don't do this because then the Egyptians will say, their God took him out into the wilderness to kill him. In other words, God's reputation is at stake with you. God is not pleased for you to have no faith and walk around like a pitiable dog. God is not pleased for you to cop a posture as poor pitiful me. You know what? What's his name saying that? Poor, poor, pitiful me. Poor, poor, pitiful me. Who was that? Yeah, that's what I thought. Warren Zevon. The werewolf of London. And so what does David say? He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. And you say, yeah, but David's saying, I, I, me. I'm telling you, David is God's friend, like Abraham. He is a man after God's own heart. God's reputation is at stake with David. David is God's people. And then we have in verse 5 this little preposition called but. But, but, but. And here I would say, if you don't mind women, I would say this but separates the men from the boys. Why do I say that? Well, because... a huge number of men today are committed to being victims. They go around saying, poor, poor, pitiful me, and the only thing that varies is why they tell other people they're to be pitied. In other words, the highest wealth in America today is the wealth of certified victim status. That's the highest wealth today. If you can be a victim, you can go through your whole life making other people feel guilty and pitying you, And that's a wonderful position to be in because the tentacles that you can extend into people's hearts and lives and into your whole family if you're a victim, it just is unbelievably powerful. It keeps everybody cringing. Poor, poor, pitiful me. And that's where David ended up, right? Wrong, right? David says, okay, I'm done. Now, God, if you're going to do something, I'll watch. 
Then he went to his wife and he said, you know, Naaman won't sell me his garden. And his wife, like every woman who has a Malakoy husband, his wife says, get out of my way, you pathetic excuse for a man. I'll go get that garden and that nursery if you want it. You remember the story in the Old Testament. You don't remember the story, read it. It, It's a trip. That woman had no problem getting that. That that owner was dead. And that's America today in women. (laughs) You know, men can walk around being victims. No woman's a victim. Absolutely not. Why? Well, because she's got children. She has too much responsibility to be a victim. Only men can spend the time it takes to be a victim. David is not a victim. David doesn't leave this talking about how pathetic he is and how his enemies are going to triumph over him and he's going to die. It's disgusting how we live. It's absolutely disgusting. I can't tell you how many times in my office I listen to you people cop postures as victims. You're not a victim. How can anyone who knows the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ be a victim? You're no victim. Every sin you've committed, you made a decision to commit. And nevertheless, God forgave you. And so you are an adopted son and daughter of God. And no adopted son of God, no adopted daughter of God has ever been a victim. Your royalty. You belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And you think you're a victim of, of political correctness? You think you're a victim on Facebook? How, how would anybody ever be a victim on Facebook? How do you be a victim in an ocean of jelly or jello or like gelatinous nothingness? That's what Facebook is. It's like, you know what I'm saying? How could you be a victim of Facebook? You know, it's like falling into a tub of mud and being a victim of the mud. (laughs) You know, oh, mud, stop. Ow, mud. Oh, mud. That hurt. Listen, no Christian can be a victim. You're a child of God. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And he has said, go and make disciples. You're not a victim. But my mommy didn't love me. Neither did mine, truth be told. And I'm the better for it. And if she were here, I guarantee you, if she were here, she was sitting right there, she, I guarantee you what she would have done just then is she would have gone... She would not have said a word, but she would have nodded her head. She would have said, he is the better for it. (laughs) So your mommy didn't love you, huh? Your husband doesn't love you. Your children don't love you. 
and you can't get them to play the record backwards. But we're Christians. We're Christians. We're not victims. We're not victims. You think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about the natural gifts, although every gift comes from God, right? So if you're tall, if you're short, if you're pretty, if you're intelligent, if you know how to work hard and love to work hard, all these things are gifts from God. But then if you look at this church and you think of the gifts, the spiritual charismata that God has given us in this church, it's unbelievable. God has poured gifts out on this church. We're not victims. We are not victims. Everywhere you go is the power of God. And if you don't believe that, that's because you are faithless. It's not because I don't know your circumstances, and if I did, I'd agree you're a victim. You're not a victim. You belong to God. And therefore, the power of God resides in you. And God has given you gifts for the building up of the church and for the winning of the world. And the church is not a victim, for heaven's sakes. Jesus says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. And I could yesterday, or day before, whenever it was, in that IU surplus place, I could have picked up one of the bicycles in front of that display case, and I could have just thrown it into the display case. And the very worst thing that would have happened to me is I would have had to pay $50 for it. Right? I mean, no one's going to prosecute me for it. I mean, we're not victims. This city is absolutely soporific under its political correctness and sexual perversity. It can't even get excited anymore. And here we have heterosexual love. It's glorious. Huh? Huh? Anybody with me? Well, it's all the old guys raising their hands. I mean, can you imagine how boring and monotonous and sleep-inducing sexual perversion is? But boy, you have a woman. <laughs> I mean, there's no end to the challenge. <laughs> I mean, you talk about polymorphous perversity. This is woman. Now, I don't really mean that, you know, but my point is obedience to God is the most beautiful thing in the world, and living for God is the most risky and enlivening and dynamic thing in the world, and orthodoxy is the most... scary thing in the world. It is never true that we are victims and that we can't do anything about our lives. It's just bunk. Only faithless people think that way. And so, 
right here with David down at the bottom, he says that little preposition, which is what? But. And then he says this, I have trusted in your loving kindness. Now, why the past tense? Why not, I will trust in your loving kindness? Wouldn't you expect that? He's down, and then he makes the decision of his will. He toughs it out. He says, I will trust in your loving kindness. The reason that it's past tense is that David is saying, I have, I do, and I will. In other words, David is saying, it has always been my commitment to trust in God's loving kindness. In other words, David has discouragement, sin, repentance, forgiveness, discouragement, sin, repentance. David has an entire lifetime of seeing God's loving kindness coming to him in his weakness and his sin. David is not just hitting this fresh. David has history with God. David has a relationship with God. And so what he's saying is, my steady state existence is to trust in God's loving kindness. And all of a sudden, this, this, this chasm that he sunk in is flattened out. I have trusted in God's loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I have I shall rejoice in God's salvation. You remember how I said it's so difficult to preach these psalms without you guys having any enemies? Well, see here, he says, I shall trust in your salvation. David has to be saved from something. What do you have to be saved from? What do you have to be saved from? I... have trusted in your loving kindness, God's loving kindness is endless. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And when we read a word like shall, you should always notice words like that when you're, um, when you're reading something that is uh, a rule book or, you know... <laughs> The base runner shall touch the base as he makes the rounds. You know, uh, the free throw sh- shooter shall not, I don't know where, your foot behind the line or on the line, not in front of, probably behind the line, I think. Shall not touch the line. And this word shall is a word that communicates complete intentionality and complete commitment. I shall. Only the word shall makes any sense when you're in the situation that David is in. Nothing less than shall is going to work. Remember I told you how my sin had brought me to death. And at that point, it was I've told you this, it was It was death or it was... And then I said, I shall repent. I shall repent. I shall. And then to help my shall, I knelt. And then the words came. 
Remember what the prodigal son said after he'd had Bloomington up his nostrils to the point where he was wishing for the food for the pigs. Remember what he said? He said, you know, like, you know, like I've been thinking. Like, you know, and like, I wonder whether, you know, maybe kind of like, you know, he said, I shall arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I am no longer worthy to be your son. Make me your servant. I shall arise. And that's what David says. David says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Remember how I say there's no room for victims in the Christian faith? God has dealt bountifully with you. You don't deserve anything good from his hand. Nothing. I don't deserve anything good from God's hand. There's not one person here that deserves anything from God. But God has dealt bountifully with us. What does bountiful mean? Well, bountiful is uh, fruitfully. God has dealt liberally. God has given us things we don't deserve. Bountiful. And so David says, you know something? I'm not going to continue my lament, my mourn, mourning. I won't keep this up. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully. I will sing. And the truth is, you cannot sing until you're depressed and at death's door. And when you're depressed and at death's door, the only thing for it is singing. I mean, you know, you think about when Glenn was dying. What do we do? There's nothing we can do except sing. You know, the Holy Spirit can pray with words that are unutterable that we don't understand. But as the Holy Spirit prays, we sing. And that's what you have to do. You have to sing. You have to sing. If you're not going to be a victim, you better start singing. I mean, think of what the Apostle Paul and Silas could have been doing. Poor, poor, pitiful me. Poor, poor, pitiful me. My mama don't love me. The Jews have it in for me. But he couldn't say that because then they'd file charges for him being anti-Semitic. I mean, think of what they could have been doing in prison. You know, Paul and Silas, you know, they could have just been talking about how they didn't really mean what they'd said and, and why didn't somebody remind them of the danger they were in and isn't anybody at the church talking to any of the governors and, 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 and being advocates for us and, and I've been here a while now and where's the heat? And where's the air conditioning? Where's the food? And we're not going to go anywhere. Why do we have such chains on? Poor, poor, pitiful me. 
But that's not what Paul and Silas were doing. Paul and Silas were doing what when they were in jail? They were singing. They were singing. And no, Paul was not singing soprano and Silas descant. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they were both out of tune. I don't think God keeps track of the IU Music School's perfect pitch. I think what God sees is what's in the heart when we sing. We had a very interesting thing happen where an older woman came to visit us one Sunday, and she was somewhat taken aback by the band leading us instead of a, a nice prissy piano. And afterwards, she said, I just love the band. We said, why? And she said, because I know I, know I can't sing. And so I never sing because people can hear me not sing. But here, I could just go ahead and not sing because nobody heard me not sing. <laughs> In other words, finally, she was able to sing because she wasn't worried about what people thought about what her voice was like. You know, so do you not sing because you're a monotone? No. The reason you don't sing is why? The reason you don't sing is because you don't meditate on God's liberality towards you. You don't think about his kindness to you. Right? Right? How can you restrain yourself from singing if you see God's endless mercy towards you? Listen, there is a real lack of joy in this church. And yet God's given us musicians to put a new song in us. And we have to sing. We have to sing. Our children sing. In fact, I would say that our children, that's one of the unique things about all our kids, is they just sing and sing and sing. If you're discouraged and you feel that God's face is absent in your life, then sing, sing. And it doesn't matter if anybody laughs at you. Everybody's jealous of the man that sings. Somebody was telling me, was that you, Ben? Or where's Michael? I guess they're... Yeah, weren't you telling us tell, about those guys that were singing at the bottom of the Eiffel Tower? The bunch of drunk Belgians or something? Oh, a bunch of drunk Irish because of the football match. Yeah, yeah. And so guess what? They're down at the bottom. They're just, and you know, they consult and come up with a new song and then sing and then accept all the adulation of everybody for them. Singing is Irish. Of course, Irish don't need any excuse to sing because they're always drunk, right? <laughs> I mean, right? It's basically true, you know. And so here they were singing. You remember what uh, William Law says in, the, in his book, Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. He says, a lot of people excuse their lack of singing in worship, saying that they don't have the gift of music. He says, you get them drunk in a bar, they have the gift of music. 
You get them drunk at a IU football game, they have the gift of music. So all kinds of places, people that won't sing in church do sing. I will sing. Now I want to end by reading you something that I think is important for us to keep in mind. Um, in the Westminster Confession, written a couple centuries ago, it has two chapters, one on the perseverance of the saints and one on the assurance of grace and salvation. And this is difficult language because it's written a couple centuries ago, but I want you to listen to this. First of all, the third paragraph of chapter 17. So take me down to three, please. Nevertheless, this is speaking of the people of God, of you, Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them. In other words, you, you might, through the temptations of Bloomington and through your own dirty heart, okay, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, you might stop coming to church, you might not read the Bible, you might not pray. You've neglected the way that God will strengthen and protect you fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. Isn't that beautiful? That's who you are. Whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others. In other words, you don't just hurt yourself, but you scandalize other people. All right, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Now, skip to chapter 18, number one. Skip down to yet such as truly. It's talking about assurance of salvation. It says, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may, in this life, be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. But keep going. Down to number three. This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with or fight with many difficulties qualities before he partakes of it. And then down to four, please. Now look, this is a precious, precious thing. Read it. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken. In other words, in many different ways shaken. True believers can have their faith shaken in a whole bunch of different ways, okay? And it may be diminished. In other words, it may decline your awareness of God's salvation, and intermitted. Sometimes it'll just stop. You won't know that God saved you, okay? As by negligence, and uh, in other words, it happens when you don't bother to preserve it because you fall into some special sin that wounds your conscience and grieves the spirit. Or you have some incredibly intense sudden temptation, or God withdraws the light of his countenance. Isn't that beautiful? God does that to us. It's his discipline. You better be able to sing. You better have a knowledge of God's long-suffering kindness to you. You better be able to sing.
withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never so utterly destitute, so utterly hopeless of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brothers. This is why. Do you know what I do? You know I'm a shepherd, right? So I watch my sheep. Do you know what I watch about you? I watch a bunch of stuff, but one of the most telling things about you is when you forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And you say, well, no, I'm here. And I say, no, you aren't. An awful lot of you aren't here. An awful lot of you think all you need is a USB 3 input from Tim Bailey and the band every Sunday, and then you go and you forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You don't go to small group. You don't come to Sunday school. You don't even want your children to have fellowship. And it's awful. Because it's one of the principal ways that God restores you when you've fallen into the condition here. And that's what it says there. That love of Christ and the brethren, that love of fellow believers, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may, and notice the phrase, in due time. In other words, in a while, in a while, be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. By the which, in the meantime, that's kind of, <laughs> it's hard, right? All it means is, and so even now when you're wounded and hurt and depressed and discouraged and you want to die, these things will bear you up until God restores to you the assurance of salvation. Look. Do not make light of singing, and do not make light of the fellowship of God's people. You may think that you're a brain, and that all you need is the intellectual input of somebody preaching to you, but it's a joke. If you're not loving your brothers, and you're not being loved by your brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you're not singing... I don't care how carefully you listen to the preaching of God's word. You remember I said earlier that William Waugh talked about how some people say they can't sing and worship because they don't have the gift of music. You remember that. And some people say the same thing about fellowship. They say they don't need fellowship because they're not personal, you know. They're not relational, you know. And it's just a bunch of... It's bogus. It's just completely bogus. God made us relational. God made us to love him. God made us to grieve the absence of his countenance shining on us. God disciplined us by withdrawing himself from relationship with us. And so you are relational because you are made in the image of God, and God is a trinity. And so don't you ever denigrate the fellowship of the people of God. Don't you teach your children to do that. So many of you have taught your children to do that. And so, and so you know, guess what? They've grown up just like you. You know, they're too proud to have fellowship, too proud to... Con con have you ever thought about how humble David is to talk about how he's feeling? in his prayers. And I tell you something, there are many of you that if you heard a man pray like this and you didn't know it was in the Bible, you would judge him. 
and you know I'm right. What a pathetic excuse for a man, you know, going on about how weak he is. I mean, you know, manipulating people with talking about death. God made us for each other. And you say, well, I don't have anything to offer. (laughs) And I said, I didn't say you did. It's precisely when you have nothing to offer that you desperately need fellowship. You need to be loved. Oh, I can't believe Tim said that. That's so sweet. Somehow I don't think you like me more because I said it. Those of you that need to hear it. You need to be loved, especially when God has withdrawn his face from you. And I'm telling you, we will do it if you're humble enough to receive love. Trust me. You want to come over and cry in my house with my wife and me? You come ahead. But don't you dare be a victim.